0: For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. Amen. Let's open in our Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 19. Some memories and, and places are forever etched into our memories. There are some places, some memories, some events, some places from your past, I know right now that even as I said that, we're coming to your mind where every detail, every sound, every smell, every conversation is immediately recallable, no matter how how long ago it was. Some events, some times, some places, some memories are just indelible. They are there forever until the Lord takes us home and maybe even thereafter. Here at the end of this narrative portion of the book of Exodus, Israel is about to have one of those experiences, one of those encounters, perhaps we could say the experience, the encounter, this soul-shaping, nation-building, identity-making experience with God here at the foot of Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, as they perhaps for the first time in all of its fullness behold the glory of God that will be revealed here visibly and also verbally as God gives them his law and his commandments. This is going to be a revelation of Israel's identity. As they leave Sinai after this experience and after months of dwelling there at the foot of Sinai, they will know they are God's covenant people and they will know that God is their covenant God. And so this scene at Sinai is not to be skipped over. It's not to be reduced just to the Ten Commandments. It's to be remembered, etched into our memories as well, because this is forever at the core of who they are as a nation and a people. This experience, this moment, this place. And it is the assembly here at the foot of Sinai on which every single assembly of the nation of Israel from that point forward will be based. And it is this assembly... On which our assembling here this morning is based. And into eternity, it will be the assembly that is always remembered and etched there into our glorified minds and memories forever. Look here at Exodus 19. We're going to read the first six verses and then we're going to read through some other portions after that. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness there. Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, "'Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, "'You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself.'" Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. As we begin here this morning, we see that Israel is to be a treasured possession to the Lord. In verse 2, we see that they're leaving Rephidim, still in the wilderness of Sinai, all these places within the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. They're leaving Rephidim, and they come to Sinai, just simply called here the mountain. But we know this is Sinai, and we know that this it fulfills a promise that God has already made. Back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, God told Moses, this will be a sign for you. When you leave and when you bring the people out of Egypt, I will bring you to this very mountain. This is the very mountain in which Moses encountered God there at the burning bush. And remember that little word play I talked about between the word for bush and the word for Sinai. It sounds the same or very similar in Hebrew. And God said, I'm going to bring you back here to this moment, to this place. That is my promise. And God has fulfilled that now. He brought Moses and the people exactly to the place where he promised he would bring them Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. It's a reminder of God's faithfulness. Every time we begin a narrative of an exodus, we're reminded of God's faithfulness. See, I did what I said I was going to do. See, I fulfilled that promise for you. In fact, God does that some more here, beginning in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings to bring you to myself. Who's the primary actor? God. See what I I did to the Egyptians in judgment. See what I did for you in salvation. One act, one set of acts in the plagues and Moses' deliverance, God on one hand judging the Egyptians and on one hand saving his people. See what I did. You have seen what I did for you. Verse 5, he continues, Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession I saved you I judged Egypt I saved you I have brought you to myself now this is what that's going to look like God says this is what covenant faithfulness now looks like I judged Egypt I saved you I brought you to myself and now you must obey me this is what it looks like to be mine I have made you mine I've delivered you This is what it looks like to belong to me. He says, you will be my treasured possession. Verse 5, not not to forget that the whole earth belongs to him. God says that all the peoples of earth are mine. The whole earth is mine. The entire universe is mine, God says. Egypt is mine in a sense, but you, Israel, you will be a treasured possession, literally a chosen possession possession, of all the earth's peoples, of all the nations that God could have at that time chosen for himself, why did he not set his love on the Amalekites? Why did he not set his love on the Egyptians? Why did he not set his love on the Philistines? Why, out of all the nations, did God set his love on this people in absolute, sovereign, unconditional election. God chooses this people to be his. He says at the end of verse 4, I brought you to myself. He says in verse 5, you are my treasured possession. And look at what he says in the beginning of verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words, Moses, that you shall speak to the nation of Israel. You're my people, my chosen nation, my kingdom of priests. I saved you. I brought you to me. You are mine. This is a wonderful reminder for Israel and us before we go any further in the story today. Before we see any of the glories that we're going to see or hear the law spoken to us in the Ten Commandments and beyond. We must start here. This is God's people he saved them he delivered them he chose them they belong to me and God reminds them this is who I am this is what I've done for you this is who you are to me but before we go on we also need a reminder of who God is number two today we see a holy God Verses 7 through 25, we see this much-needed reminder for Israel, maybe a much-needed reminder for many of us in the modern church as well. You're mine, I've chosen you, but in the joy and the wonder of all that, God says, do not forget who I am. Look at chapter 19, beginning in verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Look beginning in verse 10 what the instructions are. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. That is with an arrow, of course. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day and do not go near a woman. You hear these instructions from the Lord to the people? Consecrate yourselves. Literally set yourselves apart. Prepare yourselves down to the washing of your garments. Don't come anywhere near the mountain, not even to the edge of it. Abstain from sexual relations with each other because in three days, the glory of the Lord is going to descend and you must be ready. And the people, surely, maybe some of you today are saying, whoa, what what is about to go down here? What is this all about, God? Aren't we your treasured possession? All this very sensitive emotional language you've used about us, about bearing us up on eagle's wings, and we belong to you, and you purchased us, and you bought us. And so, so what's with this ominous note now, God? Prepare ourselves, consecrate ourselves, stand far away from you? What is this all about? In verse 16, they begin to find out what this is all about. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out to the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Here as God begins to come down on Sinai, what is there but thunder and lightning, a thick cloud and the sound of the blast of trumpets And in verse 17, it ends with this sight of the people standing there before the mountain, before the glory of of God that has come down, and they're trembling with fear. Great, trembling, overwhelming fear. Verse 18 goes on, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The people stand there in awe and wonder and fear as Moses is called up into this thing that has descended on the mountain. Can you imagine this sight? I don't know that these words do it justice, what the people were witnessing. The fear and the trembling that it put into the minds and the hearts of the people. And then Moses is called up and you would think you would look at Moses and say, you're getting called to go up there? We're not supposed to even touch the mountain and God wants you to go up into the glory that has descended? Especially in verses 21 through 25 when we have more warnings. I love amusement parks. I love going to theme parks and places like that when I was really little. You know, one of those things that always just gave me that sinking feeling in my stomach as a child, going through the waiting line on a roller coaster or whatever it was, were the warning signs. About every 10 feet, you know, for, the, for law purposes so they don't get sued, they had to tell you all the things that were gonna happen, all the people that shouldn't ride. And it was always, you know, pregnant women, the elderly, and small children. Like, I'm small children, why am I I writing this? My parents, you know, were the types that just made you do it, get it over with, and realize you were going to survive. You know, maybe. But all those warning signs made it seem like this isn't going to end well. And it seems like God is continually coming back down, sending Moses back down, and in verses 21 through 25, he does just that. Go down and tell the people one more time, do not come near the mountain. Look at verse 24. The Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down and told them. Moses tells the people, God is coming down to you. The one who saved you, the one who bought you, the one who redeemed you, who delivered you, who chose you. You are his precious treasure. You are his chosen people. You are his. And so what would you expect this encounter with God to be? If you are those people, hugs and kisses and, and cuddling and coddling and baby talk, that's what we would expect. We belong to him. He bought us. We're his. We're his treasured possession. But no, we have clouds and darkness and fire and smoke and thunder. And instead of warm, fuzzy feelings in the hearts of the people, it produces fear. What was Isaiah's response in Isaiah chapter 6 to beholding the glory of the Lord? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, what did Isaiah say? Woe is me, for I am undone. Literally, I am coming apart at the seams. Why? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And you'll find that in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, as people come face to face with God and the glory of God and the glory of Jesus, even in the Gospels, this is their pretty standard pattern reaction. Woe is me. Isaiah says, beholding the glory of God, I feel like I'm coming apart from the inside. Why? Because God is so mean. God is so hateful. These people at the foot of Sinai are filled with fear and awe and dread because God is so scary and frightening. No, it's because God is so holy. We see his love and care for his people in that he tells them, to stay away do you see that god is protecting his beloved people from his holiness and his glory and his wrath lashing out at them if they come any closer to him this is why he says to stay away because he loves them and he's protecting them stay back do not come near lest you die This is a timely reminder for much of modern Christianity that that treats God so very flippantly. In fact, many of us can't imagine God any other way than a kindly old man in the sky, perhaps bearded, holly, jolly, much like Santa Claus, pretty carefree, pretty jovial, Pretty infatuated with us. Thinks we're pretty right, pretty good. It's a safe, innocuous, harmless God. But this is not the God of the Bible. That is a weak, pitiful, needy idol. The God of the Bible is holy, righteous, pure, awesome and glorious, and when he comes down, it fills people with fear, holy fear, awestruck wonder at the beauty and the glory of this infinite God, and it produces transformation. Which leads us to chapter 20 and the giving of a righteous law. It's why we transition here at this point. Israel, this is who you are. This is what I've done for you. Do not forget who I am. This visible reminder of the glory and majesty of God. And now that you know who you are, and now that you've been reminded of who I am, this is how you are to live for me. And in and, and chapter 20, in verse 2, begins with another reminder. Look at verse two, I am the Lord your God, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Again, this is who I am, this is who you are, this is what I've done, and this is the preface. This is the forward to the 10 Commandments. This is who I am, who you are, and what it looks like to be mine. Note, from the very beginning, this is not a to-do list to become God's people. This is not a checklist if you want to hope to make it to be God's children. No, God says, because I have made you my people. Now, this is what it looks like to live like my people. And that is the forward to the entire law. In verses 3 through 17, we have what we know as the Ten Commandments. You might hear some scholars refer to it as the Decalogue. That's just a fancy word that means ten words, and really that's what we have here. In fact, you can see the Ten Commandments not so much as a standalone, but as sort of a table of contents into the rest of the law. We're going to see a little bit of that today. That these are not just standalone commandments, though they apply that way. But they serve as sort of guiding principles for the entirety of the law, which will encompass some 600 plus commandments and laws from God. But this here today, the Ten Commandments, is a summary. In chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. This is a commandment to have right theology. There are no other gods. I'm the only one true and living God, and you will have none others before me. Later we see even beside me. There is no other God. There is no other Savior. I'm it. No other gods. Right theology. Verses 4 through 6. God commands, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God so if number one is no other gods before me right theology commandment number two is no graven images and this also encompasses right theology but this is more about right worship and we're going to get to this in a few weeks with the golden calf the people weren't attempting to worship a false god in the making of the golden calf that might surprise some of you they were attempting to worship Yahweh But they said, this cow will represent Yahweh. But God has said in commandment number two, no, that is not how I am to be worshipped. I will not be worshipped in that way. So we have right theology, no other gods. We have right worship. You will worship as God commands you and no other way. Number three, verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is right reverence. Right reverence for the name of God. And this surely included speaking his name flippantly. Or misusing his name or his title flippantly. But this also had to do with how one lives. As if you were to put on a t-shirt that says, I belong to Yahweh. And then you go live as if you did not belong to Yahweh. That would be taking up, putting on his name in vain. How often do we do that even as Christians? We claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We put on the t-shirt. We got the hat. And we go out into the world and misrepresent him. That is taking the Lord's name and his glory and his position in vain. And God says here, you are to honor my name as holy. With your mouth... With your heart, with your life. Verses 8 through 11. No work on the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Right rest. As we pattern our weeks and our times after God's first week. For in six days I created the earth and on the seventh day God rested. Again, not because he was tired, not because he was worn out from all of his creation, but to show its completion and its finality and his satisfaction with it. And now he says, as a pattern, we've already been introduced to this, haven't we? As a pattern, you, Israel, are to rest on the Sabbath day. How do we sum these first four commandments up? What we call the first table of the law. How do we sum these up? You can sum them up by using Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You ever think about that? That Those first four commandments have this vertical relationship to God, and they tell us how to love him, to honor him, to worship him, to revere him, and to protect that day that he has given us. You see, it's not enough to simply claim to love God. God says, this is what it looks like. Knowing who he is, worshiping him as he commands to be worshiped, honoring and guarding his name, and setting apart a day for yourself and for him on which to worship him. This is what it means to love God. And there are other commandments that will come up under those. But if we were just to sum it up, that's the first table of the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And then we venture out into the horizontal aspects. In verse 12, honor your father and mother. I want you to notice of all the commandments, this is the only one that's set in the positive case for us. The other ones are prohibitions. No, 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 no. But this one is do. Honor your father and mother. The only commandment that includes the act of commission. This is something you you must actively, intentionally obey and do. Verse 13, no killing. This includes purposeful. This includes accidental. This is a prohibition about taking other human life upon yourself. Now, God gives the power of the sword to the state we will see that he gives the power of the sword to Israel to execute, to put to death. He's already said that here at the beginning of this whole thing. If anybody touches the mountain, put them to death. God, but I, said, I thought you said don't kill. Yeah, don't murder by taking justice upon yourself. This is not a prohibition against capital punishment. This is not a prohibition against the state using the power of the sword to subdue evildoers. That's what Paul says. That's been the nature of the Christian tradition for 2,000 years. This is about intentionally and maliciously or accidentally by neglect taking human life on yourself. And God prohibits that. Chapter 20, verse 15 no stealing. No taking from someone else what belongs to them and acting like it's yours. Verse 16 says not to bear false witness. Just includes dishonesty or deception towards one's neighbor in any case. In verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So if we were to sum up these last six commandments, how how would we sum that up? If the first four are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, how do we sum up the second table here of the law? Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How do I do that? Well, this is a good starting point. Not stealing, not lying, honoring your parents, honoring your neighbor, protecting them, loving them, caring for them. It's not enough simply to claim to love others. To simply utter the words, I love you, this is what it looks like. It must move from the heart and from feelings of devotion, and it must overflow into action towards your family, towards your friends. And here's the key, towards everyone. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, the religious leader tried to trip Jesus up on this question. They were always coming at Jesus with these trick questions that if he answered one way, he would anger one group. Or if he answered that way, he would anger the other group. And so they come and they ask him a crafty question. Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus could have said one or two or three or four. He could have picked any commandment and said, this is my favorite. This is the greatest. And he probably would have angered someone or some group in the crowd, which was the trap. But do you remember how Jesus responded in verses 37 Through verses, verse 40. He sums up both tables. Quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. And what did he say? This is the greatest commandment. That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then what did he say? On these two. Hang all the law. And the prophets. I love the wisdom of Jesus in summing up the entirety of the law in those two simple points love God and love others. This is who you are, and this is who I've called you to be. This is what it looks like to be my people, God says to Israel. Here's the pattern to follow love me and obey me by worshiping me rightly and serving and loving others. We end this section in chapter 20 with another sober, somber reminder. Look in verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. Highlight this part. And they stood far off. Moses and the people said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood, highlight this again, far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. In case you missed it, in case you've forgotten already, we have this reminder. We remember the thunder and the lightning and the clouds and the darkness, and the people are overwhelmed with fear, because you know to this point this has been God speaking from the glory And it sounds like a trumpet growing louder and louder and louder and louder and louder to the point where they say here, Moses, we can't take it anymore. You can see them stopping their ears and turning their heads and stepping back from the mountain. And they say, Moses, you can talk to us. You you can say all you want, Moses, but please make God stop because we're terrified. The sound of him has overwhelmed them with fear. And they think that they're about to die as they Peer into the darkness. Moses goes into the darkness while they stand far off. Now, I told you that what follows is sort of an elaboration on the Ten Commandments, and that's what we have. In chapter 20, verses 22 through 26, we sort of have some um, detailed laws about worship, dealing with commandments number one through number three no other gods, no idols. Honor, my name is holy. In chapter 21, verses 1 through 32, we have laws about dealing with others. And we see that second table sort of explained to us, commandments 5 through 10. How to love other people. How to protect other people. How not to harm other people. In chapter 21, verses, uh, verse 33, through chapter 22, verse 15, we have laws about what we call restitution. Restitution. Once you have done something wrong or angered or offended your neighbor, here is how to make it right. Again, commandments 6 through 10. How to love your neighbor. How to make it right if you've offended or sinned against them. In chapter 22, verse 16 through 23, verse 9, we have laws about justice How to determine what is fair and what is right in certain situations. Again, dealing with really all the commandments because it starts with honoring God and how that overflows with love for each other and how to take care of each other and how to look out for each other with right justice. And then chapter 23, verses 10 through 19, we have laws about the Sabbath. Laws about particular festivals and feasts all built there upon the Sabbath, dealing uniquely with commandment number four. God says, this is what it looks like to obey me, that you match my holiness, that you match my perfection. Listen, to perfectly love God, as put forward in the first table, and to perfectly love others, as put forward in the second table. This is the sum and total of God's goodness. This is the sum and total of his holiness and his righteousness. This is what perfection and holiness looks like. And then we have this audacious command to go and do it. But in the closing part of chapter 23, we have this covenant promise. Beginning in chapter 23, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. God promises this angel to go with them, This messenger from his presence in whom his very name dwells, the holy name of Yahweh. Represented here in this messenger, this angel that will go before them, that will lead them, that will protect them. And God reminds them, he warns them, obey him or it will cost you your very life. Obey him. Follow him. and Look at what God promises in chapter 23, verse 24. And when you come to the promised land, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. This is what you're to do when you go into the land if you want my blessing. Do not become one with those pagan people. Cast them out, overthrow them, and tear down every false god. Look here, beginning in verse 25. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless you with your bread and your water, and will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry, for be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you. Look down, beginning in verse 32. You shall make no covenant with these false gods. These people and their false gods, you shall not dwell with them or them in your land, unless you make, uh, make you, <laughs> lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. You remember when we went through the book of Judges, how he began, and the people are coming into the land, and they're in the middle of this conquest, and God reminds them of this. If you were to intermingle with these people and intermarry with these people and take their idols and take their gods, it will be a snare and a trap to you. And God warns them now, obey my voice, listen to me, I've given you my law, this is what you're supposed to do, this is what you're not supposed to do, this is what it looks like to be my holy, set-apart people. At the beginning of chapter 24, God calls Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders up to the mountain. Even as Moses goes into the darkness where God is. Look at verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words the Lord had spoken to him and all the rules. And look at what the people say. All the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. After hearing all this from the mouth of the Lord... Trembling before his presence, Moses comes and presents this to the people, and they agree. We will obey. Verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord In verse 6, Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people. And they said, again, verse 7, all the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. A ceremony, a rite is enacted. And the covenant is confirmed in these signs. These signs of sacrifice and death and fire and blood at this place of Sinai where they saw the glory of God and fire and smoke and thunder. And we're reminded yet one more time of the seriousness and the gravity and the glory of this moment. This is a heavy weighty, terrifying, glorious, beautiful, awesome moment. And it brings to mind what God said to them in Exodus chapter 6 verse 7 when he promised, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. That's what this moment right now is about. That's what Sinai is all about. That's what the sacrifices are about. That's what the blood is about. You are my people and I'm your God. God took them. They took God. They took vows. We will do as you say. They enacted covenant signs with the blood as if to say, if we don't obey you, God, may our blood be on us. You are our God, we are your people, we will obey, we will be holy. And they think to themselves, this is easy enough. We can do this, it's just just ten things after all. There's some simple instructions. We don't have to go even a few chapters to see how all this plays out very quickly, don't we? We certainly don't have to go very far, not even one generation. Before all out rebellion takes place in Israel and sin and disobedience and idolatry. And we would think, well, the covenant is broken. That's it, they've broken their side, they've broken their thing, and now they almost die. Except God gives them the entire book of Leviticus also at Sinai. And if you were with us in our study on Wednesday nights through Leviticus, you know what Leviticus is all about, don't you? Atonement, sacrifice, the shedding of blood to make things right with God because there is always sin. God establishes the sacrificial system, but the cycle can never stop. It's blood upon blood upon blood upon blood because the sacrifices don't fix the problem. It simply covers up the sin and atones for the people, but it can't change their hearts. And we think, couldn't just one person in Israel be holy enough? Of all these millions of people here, couldn't one person perfectly obey God? Couldn't just one person perfectly obey Him and love their neighbors? Of course not. Hence the need for the covenant blood and the sacrifice and atonement. The ongoing nature of that. I want you to listen to me this morning. We are so tempted to occasionally convince ourselves that we can do this too. We can obey God. Many of you today probably think that you are currently keeping or have kept the Ten Commandments. As good and right and holy as they are, You must understand this morning that they cannot be just generally approved and accepted. And that counts as if you've kept them. If you're going to obey the Ten Commandments, they must be always, everywhere, all the time, perfectly obeyed. And James tells us in James 2.10 that to fail in just one aspect of the law, just one Is to fail in the whole thing. And Paul reminds us in Romans 3.23. All have sinned. And fall short. Of the glory of God. The glory of God that's revealed here in the law. The holiness of God that's revealed here in the Ten Commandments. We've all already sinned. And we've all already fallen short of that. So we're in the same boat as them. We're left scratching our heads thinking how? How can we do this? Who can do this? This is Bad, bad news. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 offers us some good news. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There was one man. There was one man born of a woman. Apart from Adam's fallen seed. Truly, though, man. Just as Adam, just as you, just as Israel. And he was born under this same law. And Paul says he came to redeem those who were under that law so that they could become and be called the very children of God. And how did he redeem those under the law? What did he have to do? Well, he had to start with the basics. Love God, love neighbor. He had to do it in every aspect, every way, every time, every place, perfectly, perpetually. And the good news about who Jesus is, is that he never failed to perfectly obey God, and he never failed to perfectly love his neighbor. In fact, he said his very mission, Matthew 5, 17, was to fulfill the law, to do all of it perfectly his entire life. But the weighty irony in all of this is that this one who perfectly obeyed God, who perfectly loved God, who perfectly loved his neighbor, is killed, crucified, executed by the very will of God. Back on Sinai, Moses threw the blood of the sacrifice on the altar, and the people understood. We undertake this covenant with God, and if we fail, let that be done to us. And the blood of lambs and goats and bulls and doves continually and perpetually reminded them of the ugliness of their sin and the payment that they deserved before a holy God. And it's the price that we all deserve because of our sin. But on another mountain, at a higher altar, blood was once again shed. Not that of a goat or a lamb or a bull, or a bird, but that one who perfectly obeyed God and perfectly loved his neighbor. And that blood was thrown against not some altar on a mountain, but it was thrown against an old wooden cross as payment was made, atonement was secured, not just once in a while, but once for all. A perfect, spotless, eternal sacrifice was made for you. Amen. Somebody, Couldn't just one person in Israel be holy? Couldn't just one person in Israel be spotless and pure and perfect? Yes, only one. The Holy One of Israel. God's anointed. The Lord Jesus Christ. Not one fallen man in Israel could do it then. Not one fallen woman or man in this room can do it now. You must find redemption in the one, the only, the spotless, the perfect, the pure, the law-keeping lawgiver, Jesus Christ. You must be reconciled to God by his blood, covered in his righteousness, set free from the curse of your sin, to be made a child of God, as the apostle John says. He gave those who did receive him, who did believe in his name, John 1 verse 12, he gave them, verse 13, the power to be called the very children of God. I don't know if you saw the fire and the lightning and the earthquakes and the thick darkness and the clouds of smoke. I don't know if you were listening when we heard the thunder and the rumblings and a voice that sounded like a trumpet getting louder and louder. Did you see the fear and the trembling of the people? Did you see the command to stay away as they stood far off? But you know as we began our service today that Jesus died and Jesus rose again and Jesus ascended. Moses might have gone up to Sinai, but Jesus went on up into heaven. And I know that you know on the day of Pentecost it said they were in one place of one accord when suddenly from heaven came what? The sound of a mighty rushing wind and the place shook and fire descended, not coming down to light upon some mountain somewhere in the wilderness, but resting, the Bible says, on each one of them. And the glory of God descended once more, not to just one man standing on the glory of Sinai, but filling each one of the disciples in the upper room, writing the law of God, not on tablets of stone, but in their very hearts. And what did Peter stand up to say on that day? What did Peter say in Acts 2.39? The promise is for you and for your children, and who else? All those who are far off. Who is the promise for? Those who are far off. I'm so glad the promise is for those who are far off those who couldn't come near, those who trembled at the voice of God, those whose sin and inability to keep that law separated them from a holy God. I'm so glad that those who had to be far off can be brought near, Ephesians 2.13, by the very blood of Christ. Hebrews 10 invites us then, "'Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith.'" Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Revel in this privilege, church. You lawbreakers, you are God's people. Because his blood has been shed for you and applied for you. And though you once stood far off, you are no longer strangers. You have been brought into the family of God, called not just friends, not just servants, but sons and daughters. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 through 10 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Doesn't that sound familiar? That's you, church. You have a better Moses, a better deliverance, a better exodus, a better covenant. And as wonderful as Sinai was, you have something better than Sinai. Would you stand to your feet? I'm going to close by reading from the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. Listen, this is for you, believer. You have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest. The sound of a trumpet, and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure. The order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is what you have, child of God. These are your privileges. Not some ladder to climb up to God, but instructions on how to live now that you belong to God. Unbeliever, I want you to hear the gracious call of this God today. Though in your sin, you're condemned to stand far off. If you'll hear the voice of Christ today and repent and believe and come to God in Christ, you can hear that invitation. Come near. Come near. I'm going to pray. I know it's been a long service. You know, whatever. The Lord has spoken. His word has been preached. We're going to sing every single verse of this last song. Because we need to revel in the glory and the beauty of what God has done for us. Let's pray. Our great God, we cannot but humble ourselves before you. and the beauty and the magnitude of what you've done for us. God, I ask that as we respond in obedience today, you would instill in our hearts the weight of that moment that they shared then at Sinai, the weight of the moment that each of us stand in right now, because in Christ, we are in your very presence. God, thank you for the blood. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the gospel. That those of us who are far off can be brought near in Jesus. Help us never to forget it. Help us to never cease to praise you for it. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. That's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.